0: From Rixie, this is Frameform, a show about movies, moving, and everything in between. I'm Hannah Weber. I'm Jen Ray, And
1: I'm Claire Schweitzer. Hello, everyone. Happy Wednesday. Uh, We hope that uh, you all are staying well wherever you're listening, whether... Again, whether it's in your car or whether you're waking up to our the dulcet t- tones of our voices or um, I guess dulcet is, um, your mileage may vary on that. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a very exciting episode today with a very exciting guest. Today, we are going to be discussing the greater world of um, screen dance networks and just Examine ways like how we connect, how maybe how the way we connect is different now in these um unprecedented times and And we are thrilled to welcome someone who has almost two decades of experience with this kind of work so
2: well, and something we talked about when deciding this episode, is we knew we wanted to do something around the topic of like our community, but we didn't know what to call it exactly because. First, we were like, screen dance industry, question mark. So that's definitely something we're going to talk about. But our guest is certainly someone that can speak to uh, the academic side and the uh, curatorial side and the producing side. So if there is a screen dance industry, I think we have brought in a very good person to talk about it. And if there is not a screen dance industry, we have certainly brought the right person to also debunk it. Um, (laughs) But first, what are we watching? I
0: watched a really great movie last night. It's been a while. I honestly have to say it has been a while since I've watched a film that has given me so much joy. I've watched a lot of stuff. But this one was something that just made me so happy. If you haven't seen it, it's also on HBO Max and it is Babette's Feast.
1: I have not seen this. I have heard of that and I am intrigued. It is an
0: amazing movie uh it's 1987 danish film uh directed by Gabriel Axel and uh it's danish, swedish, french um it's about this small little town in like very desolate on the water and these people in their community are good to one another and very religious and people go in and out but don't really stick around. And then this woman, Babette, shows up and she is given a place of for home during the Civil War in France. Um in I can't remember what year it takes place at the top of my head, but it's definitely like the early like eighteen hundreds, And um she comes from France, stays in this small little Danish town, and basically she wins the lottery and cooks this amazing feast for the town. And she she comes to the town, and she doesn't get paid to do anything but cook. She was like, I'll work for free. I just need somewhere to live. And I, I just loved the movie and also like just watching I don't know if if y'all like to watch like cooking shows or anything like that like I was so satisfied watching this woman cook like a proper like French feast and it was so elaborate and I mean it's just a movie but something about the glorification of watching food be made is just so satisfying to the eye that's what made me so drawn to like Anthony Bourdain and also going into film early on in my career. Uh but it's such a great film. There's so many subtleties in it. And it left me really happy. And it was like a kind of a random like Friday night pick to watch. Uh after <laughs> a really like weird week of roller coaster rides. Um, but it was Amazing and I definitely recommend everyone to watch it.
2: I uh rewatched uh There's Something About Mary yesterday. What? <laughs> which is still like the best rom com. Like Mark and I were cracking up, and I don't know why they don't make costume pants, or maybe they do, but they need to make costume pants that are like prepared with the uh the Frank and the Beans. Ugh. Right? Oh like why don't they make costume
1: mm. pants like that? No. <laughs> I'm at the point where I just wince when I just hear the name of that yeah. movie because I, I immediately... Well, I either immediately to jump to Brett Favre or that
2: scene. <laughs> yes. It's just so good. And it's, it's seriously one of the best rom-coms. And then we, we thought Ben Stiller's in a lot of the best rom-coms, period.
0: Another movie that he was in that is also just as good as Something About Mary is Keeping the Faith with him and Edward Norton and oh, i actually yeah. haven't I, seen that that's what you should watch next i think you and mark would really enjoy it it's so funny edward norton actually directed it and um i forget the blonde lead's name but she's uh Dharm- she plays dharma from dharma and greg so it's it's also a really funny movie
2: yeah it's good to just watch something light once in a while especially because i like overanalyze everything when I'm watching, I can't help but, like, keep my film studies cap on. So when I'm just analyzing how funny something is, that's really satisfying.
1: Well, I was on a Criterion binge recently, and specifically I've been binging a lot of, um, like, old Criterion horror movies. Um, maybe just Tis the Season or just maybe because I'm trying to will California into autumn finally. Um, which, I-, I mean, exciting news, it rained yesterday. Yay! What? <laughs> so, yay! Uh, no more wildfires, I hope. Yeah, but I was watching um, a few interesting horror movies, and one of them is a movie called Kuroneko from Japan, and Kuroneko um, literally translates to black cat, and it's um, it's a really interesting film. Came out, I think, nineteen sixty eight. It's about well, two two women in um, sort of feudal Japan who are murdered by. Samurais and are reincarnated. I guess I'm not sure if reincarnated is the right word, but they um, turn into these spirits who lure these samurai into their home. And then once the samurai are in their home, they turn into cats and kill the samurai. All right. Awesome. um <laughs> Anyone who knows me, if um, I'm wearing my cat earrings for the specific occasion. <laughs> it's actually a really lovely movie and a really lovely atmospheric movie. And it incorporates a lot of like kabuki dance. So during the moments when the men like, I mean, the, one of the women turns into the cat and like, you know, gets gets a meal out of the man. The other woman is doing a very like a very like almost a cat like kabuki dance. So it's a really actually a really interesting use of dance in a film. And and also interesting to see sort of like the new the Japanese new wave film uh, evolving into like the late 60s eras, too, and seeing like what elements of what what elements of other um other filmic traditions find their way in. So, Kuro Neko, Black Cat, highly recommended.
0: I would definitely want to watch that. I love Japanese film.
1: (laughs) Without further ado, uh, let us dive into our topic of the week, and let's also introduce our guest of the week, who, again, I'm so thrilled is able to join us from across the pond. Again, this is all an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> Gita Vigro is a freelance dance film programmer who is based in London, and she's worked as a guest programmer, speaker, and jury member for, among others, among many others, the American Dance Festival, Dance and Women in Italy, BFI Flare, Big Dance Shorts, and Light Moves in Limerick, Ireland. Currently... Gita is the course leader for the Screen Dance MA program at uh, the London Contemporary Dance School. Since the inception of the course, she's also led a module on presenting screen dance work and facilitates a student-led festival. And I do have to say on a personal note, I I went to quite a few dance film events last year and Frame Rush was one of the best curated events there. So, And also, um, as far as people who have done have connected others or has put in the work in connecting others. Gita is one of the first people I think of whenever I need a resource. So you probably have seen the Video Dance Facebook page, the Dance Film Twitter page that posts a bunch of opportunities and events. You also have probably um, seen the Screen Dance Calendar, which posts a lot of these events. Gita is the brains behind those um, those resources. So Gita, it is, so, it is such an honor for us to have you on the show today.
3: Thank you. It's it's well, it's always awkward to hear yourself described, but it's it's nice when it's in really favorable terms. <laughs> you did all that. You did all that. You earned it. <laughs> well, it's great to be here with you and I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
1: So, actually first of all, I wanted to start the conversation by thinking about how we connect with others in the screen dance world or how we connected with people pre-COVID. Like what were the events or the venues or the situations where we connect with other practitioners or people interested in the form?
3: So I can tell you from uh, my perspective, or in a way, the window that I've seen. So I started working in dance film in 2000, which is a really nice, easy number to remember. And I think for the first 12 or something years, one of the hubs in terms of festivals that would connect a lot of people was the IMZ Festival, which was biennial and is now every three years, I think. And by virtue of the fact that IMZ had massive connections with broadcasters, which were, you know, a source of money and a source of funding and a source of distribution, they attracted a lot of attention and they had some resource to put something on. It was... For those of us who were programming work, it was a must in the calendar because the submissions catalogue was available to view in a massive video tech. And, you know, when I first went, that was VHS tapes. And you would go with a little chit and you could write down three films you wanted to see. The person who manned the library would hand them to you. You go off to your stations, you view them, you go back with a new chit for three more, and, you know, it was very labor intensive, but it was extraordinary what resources they managed to corral for all of us to see as much international work as possible.
2: Well, you're talking to three fans of physical media big time. So, I mean, when you say VHS, my ears perk up.
3: <laughs> yes. The IMZ Festival was really quite a collection of work and and a collection of being able, to, a connecting point, to meet the artists, to meet other programmers. I made a lot of my personal, maybe some festivals that I would think of as an important one in terms of connections. But I think IMZ has changed a little bit because the broadcasting situation is very, the landscape is very different. So it feels like things are shifting. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think change is good, not always, but you know some change is certainly welcome. And yeah, it feels more diffused now. But then, as you said, claire, with the um, with the COVID situation and a lot of things going online, suddenly other opportunities have become so much more available. So
2: as a curator yourself, how have you navigated the changes this year? I know that some festivals have gone online, some festivals are online and paid, some are free. What did you personally decide to do with Leeds International Screen Dance Festival, and and how has that experience been as a curator and a producer for you, given the whole COVID situation?
3: I work on a number of festivals, and for each one, the answer is quite different. So for Leeds, because we are one strand in a larger festival, Leeds International Film Festival is the second largest festival in the UK. I don't get to make the call. That is decided by Chris Fell, who is the director of the festival, and he, in turn, has to do what the government says. So we are not currently able to do in-person screenings and so the lead screenings are going online but for instance Claire mentioned FrameWash which is curated by the students so I'm there facilitating their process but they are the ones who um, envision the festival and plan and execute the festival and the date of the festival was i think it ended up being literally three days before uk went into its first lockdown oh Mm. Oh my god and we could see this starting to emerge and there were some of us who were in favor of trying to shift online because you know it's not a massive festival the capacity isn't huge because it's not an exercise in making the students pack a house it's an exercise in thinking about curation and programming and exhibition and connection with an audience and so it's not about achieving numbers or anything or getting a financial return but we did do the festival live and thank god it doesn't we haven't had any reports that it was a contagious event but it did feel really close to the wire and made me also very aware that people from different backgrounds and experiences with pandemics bring also a completely different set of knowledge to this and prior experience of this does not go well and we need to disinfect and we need to have masks and we need to and you know and maybe this shouldn't be happening this way.
2: Well I'm really glad it worked out for the students.
3: Yes absolutely and I think they pulled something off that was so incredibly difficult and and required a huge number of really high-level and complex decisions. So, yeah, they did well.
2: I'm really interested in how you coach them to curate and produce. Like, you know, first of all, for you to say their priority is not to pack the house, right? So already that's like a value, right? Because I think some programs might be like, we're teaching you sales. We're teaching you how to get people into the theater and reach as many people as possible. So what's your approach as you're coaching them uh, to make this festival and to refine with their curatorial approaches?
3: So the course has run for two years now. It's fairly new. And I think probably from the students' experience, they would say that I am a horrible taskmaster to say, no, 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 you do need to market this. You can't just rely on, you know, your mates coming You in order to in order to think about, well, how the, the thing that interests me in, in that exercise is always how do we speak about dance film? And particularly because in both years, I think the students were interested in... So both cohorts were interested in reaching beyond an existing audience. And of course, we are familiar uh, with how we speak to each other. We're not so familiar with speaking beyond our existing group. I do kind of make them do the marketing and to try and really engage with it but not because i want them to have massive box office income but because i want them to think about well what does that mean and and the reality that they experience is unfortunately the same reality that we all experience is that it would be really nice to spend some good time really thinking about our wording and instead you're thinking i have twenty seven things to do. I have half an hour to do them. I have to write a tweet and you know that that push pull unfortunately there isn't because it's a it's a live event i mean because it's because it is real, the real world pressures are also part of what they have to navigate so
1: so uh when it comes to these festivals. Obviously, they're uh, the platforms for a curatorial view, but that curation doesn't isn't limited to the films itself. Like you really are, in a sense, curating the experience and curating the festival space, which is where a lot of these connections happen, where a lot of these connections with other dance film practitioners, as well as people who might not really know a whole lot about dance film. Maybe they have identity cues that are, you know, branched out all. Dancers and people interested in dance, filmmakers who might not even have seen dance film. What kind of spaces facilitate these connections? And is I know that you uh, have a an emphasis, or that, that you uh, really uh, have the students practice marketing. But do you offer any insight as to how to how to construct the space of the festival and how to con- construct a space where co- connections are facilitated?
3: Yeah, I think this is interesting also, again, with across the different festivals that I work on and then also the festivals that I've visited. And I think some festivals have an easier time than others. Part of it is, and this is thinking pre-COVID, is, is just filmmakers being able to attend, which usually has something to do with, are you from a country that has travel budgets for artists who are presenting a film or are you from one that says, well, it's nice that you made this, but you're on your own. So who can be there is always really um, crucial for that and who can't be there. And how can we use the resources we have to make that to open this up into something that's more available, I guess, for a wider range of people. And I think it's there are, you know, in the in the back in the mists of time when I worked on Dance on Screen, which was a big London Dance Film Festival in that was also based at the place, just thinking about that festival in hosted in that very same building and the Frame Rush festival, which is smaller intentionally also that very same physical space behaves differently depending on what of which studio space do you have access to. Is the bar part of your event or part of something else that's going on in the theater? How does the audience flow to, through the event? Is the back door open for people to come in and have a, or go out and have a smoke and come back? And, you know, the, the physical space makes a huge difference for a lot of events, I think. They, when you go to CineDance, which is at the Eye in Amsterdam, which is a dedicated film museum, everyone is in that one place. And it's actually because you have to take the little ferry across the ice, people aren't really a flight risk. You're all going to be hunkered together. Whereas in the olden days when CineDance was spread across several venues, you'd splinter a bit more. That can also mean that you have an opportunity to really chat with someone because you're, you know, three of you are hungry and you're going to go hunt for food. And, you know, there are so many really practical layers to this. And, you know, obviously there are more, there's probably a more thoughtful answer in there in terms of how you construct an experience. But right now for some reason my brain is really going to the physical spaces and maybe that's because i haven't been in one for a really long time <laughs> <laughs> i feel yeah <laughs> no i was just thinking you guys have attended different festivals too and it's kind of yeah collating what what works in what way because i think there are a few things that don't work at all and there are different things that work differently depending on what you're trying to achieve
2: well there's there's two things you touched on that i think are really massive for me one is the sort of producer role and the involvement of an arts organization or a government funding. There are a lot of festivals that are sort of those, I would call them a more like institutional festival if it's something that is related to, you know, they have government funding, whether it's state or provincial or federal, and just kind of are more ingrained in those art institutions. And then there's these more like indie boutique brands, which is more my flavor, and personally, like, I like being in that lane, but there, it, there's room for all these different nuances and different approaches. But I think a huge part of that is not just the resources that go towards these events or even I'm sure we'll talk about like education as well. Of course, I definitely want to hear more about the place and about your work teaching. But a big part of this is like geographical hubs as well. We always see a, a huge number of films coming out of New York and Los Angeles. Like, a lot of films coming out of San Francisco. San Francisco Dance Film Festival does a lot of great work cultivating that local community, commissioning works. It's interesting to see these internationally. I would say there's probably, like, maybe six, five or six, like, screen dance capitals. And I would say, based on our conversation, like, London is certainly one of them. Just also just by virtue of actually having a program there which we don't have in every single country and in every single major city.
0: I mean, we're all talking about, like, hubs of, like, where these dances are coming from. And as a curator from the online side, I think that's where I feel most comfortable because of kind of, like, Keita, what you were saying of, like, how do we... Sometimes people can't go to those festivals. And I've always been someone who has a million things going on and I can't go to those festivals and I want things to be more accessible online. And that's kind of like where my, maybe it's just the age I am or like the how internet has affected all of us during this time of like being dormant, but also growing up in the age of the internet becoming a thing. You know, you've become more comfortable in your own little bubble. And you get to explore much more through the online database. But it's funny to see how things have transferred during this time of shelter in place. And just like, how do we become even closer to one another with the materials that we have in front of
1: us? Yeah, going off what Hannah was saying, it's been interesting during shelter in place just how... One of my main concerns was when I was seeing a lot of these films and a lot of these events go online was that we're going to lose, what, to me, what a festival environment is known for, which is, you know, cultivating those connections and uh, connecting people. But it's been interesting seeing the different uh, ways that festivals have been able to do that, whether it's like a Zoom conference call or like a Zoom talk um, as a supplemental activity, or even if it's like a live chat during the festival itself. Like I remember Simon's Festival had a live stream along with a live chat And to me, and particularly, I'm just mostly speaking in terms of American um, dance film festivals, this creates a huge bridge in that regard because one of the beautiful things about Europe is that things are just so close to each other and things are so accessible. Like you can, I think we were talking Gita recently, that you can literally like pay five pounds for a Ryanair flight to Paris as long as you only have like a Tesco bag's worth of stuff. (laughs) But that sense of travel, that, um, you know, mobility isn't as easy in the States. Like unless you've you've traveled here, have had to drive through here, like the distance between San Francisco and Los Angeles is basically the same as the distance between Glasgow and London. Like travel is hard. And like there's an incredible area like, you know, Virginia, North Carolina, D.C. that has a wealth of dance film going on that is, quite frankly, just very difficult to get to. And not to mention like this, you know, all those festivals like Sans Souci, for instance, in um, in Colorado or Utah Dance Film Festival, which are great events in and of of themselves, but also require like a three hour plane ride plus another one and a half, two hours of driving to actually even access the venue. So the sense of uh, like an organically sprung screen dance network isn't quite as accessible in the States, whereas something where, like in Europe, where you see a lot of the same people, it's different, different events. Like there's, a, I guess, a stronger hold there.
2: Well, part of the interesting thing with the U.S. festivals is like, can we talk about just the sheer volume yeah. of them? You know, the fact we're even naming like 10 festivals and being like, they're happening over here and over here. That says a lot about the entrepreneurial spirit and the fact that a lot of institutions here um, and organizations really do take dance film or screen dance seriously, which is awesome. It's funny when you started talking about geography, like I now live on the East Coast in the U.S. and I used to live in the West Coast in Canada. So anywhere else in the world, DMV means Department of Motor Vehicles. But here it means D.C., Maryland, Virginia. And moving here, it was so strange because all of a sudden I was used to being across the border like really close to the U.S. border, but not being close to other states or provinces or connected to anything. And the West Coast is very spread out like that. As soon as you move to the East Coast, things are much more densely populated, which I think also facilitates people's um, perspective, which is like another state doesn't feel so far away, even between Canada and the U.S. Another country, it might feel closer or far away, whereas I feel like Europe has more Europe seems to have more fully formed separate identities, but a collective European identity. Whereas I don't think that, or not like a collective identity, but you all, there's this agreement of like, yes, but we're all in Europe, which essentially is like, we're not American is a lot of the time. It's like, we're definitely separate from that. We're on, we're across the pond. Whereas Canada has, not that many festivals at all. I think I'm probably one of three to five events that happen at all in Canada. So from my perspective moving here, I'm like, wow, I live in a, I live in a country that has so many different things going on, even though a lot of it isn't necessarily institutional. There's a lot of private um, sort of making it happen that actually makes these things a reality. But I, I see Europe as a much more established in that sense. Things have been around longer your festivals are tend to be bigger they tend to be funded they're really creative and I'm not saying that we don't we don't know how to throw a great party or curate a great festival over here as well but um there's there's a very clear distinction even with the work that we see come out of Europe like I feel like I can identify a European film in five seconds just like I can identify
3: a New York or an LA film or a Seattle film (laughs) I can't, I definitely can't do the granular distinction between, you know, East Coast or West Coast dance film, but I, I also have the, I think that's American. I think that's European. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Or Asian films, of course. Yeah. Singapore seems to be pouring out films at the moment. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things for me to pick up on that, but. Partly, I just need to set aside a bit of heartbreak when you're saying a European identity and I'm speaking as someone who has dual nationality as a Brit and as a German. And I know very well that there's going to be very few Brexiteers in the screenings community in Britain, uh, but we know that that's going to have an impact and it's going to, I mean, If you are in the arts in the UK right now, you do feel like you're about to drift off into some of the colder reaches of the, you know, northern seas. So, Could you please expand a
2: bit on that? Because I feel like the three of us know what you're talking about, but this is, like, really big deal stuff. Like, this is social, political, uh, seismic shift sort of stuff. So can you expand on that a little bit?
3: Well, I mean, the basics... Are that as of the um, as of the first of January we will have ended the transition period. Um, that means that the last bit of tethering to the European Union that the UK has been part of since I think 1974. I should know this by heart. <laughs> <laughs> We're not judging. Yeah. Um, so the the European Union, uh one of the key factors for this is that it enables freedom of movement for all citizens of Europe. So when I decided I grew up in Germany, uh, which you know, my accent also I want to explain, my accent will wave freely between Germany, Britain, and then living with an American. So no guarantees for how I sound. Um So one of the tenets, one of the four freedoms for all uh, citizens of uh, an EU country is that one of them is the freedom of movement. And you can go and study and go and work anywhere in the EU. So when I uh, decided that I wanted to study, the two places that I looked at for my dance degree were um, the Netherlands and the UK and i got offers from both i decided to go to the uk i traveled i didn't need a visa i didn't need anything i got on a bus with a bag and that was it and um this mobility the ability to transfer between countries to move to to exchange to to you know i can have a guest lecture over from italy i don't need to go through 15000 hoops to say yes this you know we can't possibly find someone else with this experience in the UK and that just enables a wider variety of voices and I think that's going to impact things a lot it's going to have an impact on academia and a lot of artists livelihood is supplemented by teaching or working in academia and it is one of the places where artistic research happens, that's going to have an impact because universities will feel the financial impact and anything that isn't particularly geared towards a profitable course is gonna have a hard time. And then just uh, access to funding, so EU cultural funding. And a lot of that happens mainly at the level of institutions and organizations, but obviously that is part of the fabric here. So. I think for the UK, it's going to be a bit of a grim picture. And I think we will see what we can individually and collectively do because people never stop somehow finding ways of doing something.
2: Well, we certainly have a big little community. And I think that we're, you know, some of us are more connected or more seated in the community than others, uh, or we have our little niches or our, our geographical regions. But the screen dance or the dance film nerd world is not that big. I feel like there it's easy for us to find each other and support each other. I think we have excellent energy and a good um community approach where we're all trying to advance the form and conversations and sharing resources and it, like Claire mentioned at the beginning like thank you so much for like the leadership you've taken on. I think that's a real inspiration for people because these things don't exist until someone has the idea and then actually does it, you know, and you've actually put in the work to say like, okay, there isn't uh, a, a single screen dance calendar that has all these resources in one place. That would be a good thing. There's a, multiple people that need this. Why don't we set it up?
3: Well, I just want to make sure I credit correctly because Simon Files, uh, an artist based in the UK, in, in uh, Scotland, who originally set it up and shared it, and I just thought I know how to soup that up a bit because I'm a nerd. Um,
2: <laughs> I feel like I also thanked him for the calendar, and then he like gave you credit. So I love how you two are like, no, 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 it's all them. Like,
3: <laughs> but it's all lineages. So Claire is one of the people who who works on maintaining it, and it's about trying to make sure that it's open source and that it rests not on the shoulders of one person, but on several of us that that also doesn't become a monolithic voice or one person's choice of anything and part of making that a shared endeavor was not just the future proofing but my experience of running the facebook and the twitter accounts which are very patchy because i sometimes just literally run out of time sometimes also out of will to be on facebook but Yeah, the idea of carrying something together seems to be very easy to generate. As you say, Jen, I think it does feel like an extremely collaborative field and collegiate and open to a shared endeavour rather than trying to protect one bit of pie from everyone else. And that's been just so uh, enriching throughout.
2: And we'll definitely link that calendar in the show notes as well, so that people can find it and they can add to it and comb through and decide everything they want to do with it. I was just
0: thinking, like, it's interesting how, in recent years, I feel from my point of view, how the screen dance community has grown so much bigger or just even more cohesive than it has before. As I was saying earlier, just being like an online presence in person i'm very uh i'm very shy and it's really hard to like go up to people and just kind of like insert myself like i get a little bit of social anxiety from that and just being on the online presence of that it's been rewarding to be seeing such a collaborative effort i mean i think in the dance community as a whole aside from the screen dance community it's very competitive and i think that is something that is very spirited in just the dance community alone and sometimes that energy goes into the screen dance community but which is i i, I don't get it i don't understand why and i like that people are kind of like letting that part of themselves shed off and open up more about like how can we make things better i mean that's like why i wanted a podcast to come together because you can have these conversations anywhere i mean jen and i met at the american dance festival dance on camera event years ago
2: we sure did it was romantic we went for dinner and it was just
0: from just like hey like what did you think of the films, and i do like I do miss that kind of energy in person, but um, it really is hard, you know, like especially I mean, I would just say like a few years ago it was harder, and now it's kind of like, all right, I wanna meet more of these people and try to like you know it's not a competition in any way it's I hate that dance can be like that sometimes though. It's just embedded. It's embedded at us very young and especially in American dance culture with like those competitions and, you know, it's not, it's definitely not healthy at all.
3: It kind of, it makes me think um, about two things that you were saying. One is when we were talking earlier about what helps connect people at a festival, if it's happening in person. And one of the things is actually to have an eye on, who are your guests and who could you bring together just very easily and very casually A sort of, Oh, have you met this person, you know, and just try and and be a bit of a a connector for people. Um, And the other thing is that the experience I've had with everything going online with COVID is that it's been so much easier and more frequent that to be approached or for me to approach someone so at one of the I can't remember which event it was I think it might have been actually the Screen Dance Scotland Festival in one of the discussions I noticed someone who was making comments that really interested me and I thought oh there's more behind that I want to know why they asked that question because it's the way that it's phrased I know there's other stuff in there that really interests me but it wasn't appropriate to follow it up in the discussion because it's got its wider theme but I know the name I can look them up on Facebook and say hi would you would you be up for having a conversation where and I wouldn't have done that before I don't think I would have done that before and I've also had people connecting with me and it's been that's been really fantastic and that's something that I want to try and keep that's something I really struggle with because
2: it's part of the bittersweet components of social media. At the same time, it makes it so easy to network. If we have any serious conversations on there, it's like you don't own your ideas anymore. I just am really, and this was before even watching The Social Dilemma, like I was watching interviews with Jaron Lanier, like I was on to this for a while. And I just, that's something I really struggle with is like, okay, how do we maintain that connection without needing to attend a particular school or work at a particular place? How do we still connect online without having to rely on Facebook and Instagram? These platforms that I honestly don't particularly like or trust, but have certain benefits. Um, And that's one reason why I love that there's just a Google calendar, right? There's an open source Google calendar. Not that Google's perfect either, but I mean, that one I've accepted. Google has my life. So are there any other resources or things that are happening online but off of social media that uh, that you're
3: aware of that we could use to connect? I mean, there's a lot in what you said. One is the thing about, in a way, you're talking about intellectual property and retaining the right to your ideas. And I like to think about, hang on to or cling two for dear life depending on how I feel something that Deborah Hay said because her practice involved making a writing in a way a score a choreographic score that she would then hand over to artists who would create their own performance of that score so the idea of giving your work away and someone asked her about this and you know she said well I know that I will always be able to come up with more ideas and this deep seated faith and okay if someone else runs with it don't worry i've got other things something else will come and just to (laughs) that kind of relaxes me if i think what if someone else takes my great idea but yeah so in terms of the i i hear you 100 percent on facebook and instagram and also the fact that all of these things are patchy they're not a phone book of the world and I have just had an experience programming in a region where I don't speak the language and how much that has meant that I have to really rely on other networks who can help translate for me. And, you know, I don't I think it's great that programming isn't a sort of single endeavor anyway, but how much that how much I am missing by not being familiar for instance with the film industry in Nigeria. I I don't know anyone there and I wouldn't <laughs> Oh, know you didn't to... know you were missing out? <laughs> it's like a really big deal. No, no no, I that's what I'm saying. Like I wasn't programming in Nigeria, but I I'm saying for 10 years I've been thinking Nollywood, there there must be films in, that that are interesting from a screenhand's perspective. There must be filmmakers in in I haven't tried very hard, but you know, that's a decade of going what's going on and not having much of an inroad. So there is something about being aware who's not in the room, who we don't have access to, and not for the benefit of them. I'm really just thinking about the benefit of me because I think there's interesting work in the world that I'm not getting to.
2: Well, and the, the films we do get from Africa are usually very strong. Like when I would say that's, aside from Antarctica, that is the continent I get the least amount of submissions from. But when I get them,
3: they're very strong. I find that a lot of the films that I see in submissions that are filmed in Africa uh, are are often created by artists who are based in France or Belgium or, you know, countries that have a colonial history and just introduces layers that, you know, it, it needs just a bit of research to be aware of what the materials I'm working with and to understand what I'm working with and whose perspective I'm taking. What are your thoughts on, uh, like,
0: the future of the Screen Dance festivals and workshops and there to come from now forward? (laughs) Just that. I know it's a big question. I mean, I'm giving you, I want the weather forecast of, like, what we're expecting. (laughs) I mean, it's just interesting because of, like, where we are now and what we have behind us you know, and just setting up new ways of technology and exploring, you know, social climate through dance media. I mean, I have some ideas, but I'm wondering where where do you think we are going in the direction that we're going?
3: I mean, I just outsourced that question to three really excellent people. I was invited to uh, put together a panel discussion for an organization in the uk called southeast dance and that will be online shortly i know that claire you attended as well um hopefully that will be online also depending on whenever someone listens to this that will still be online but basically i asked claudia kappenberg and marisa zanotti and kara hagen to talk about this uh, because i think there isn't one single trajectory i think this is a moment of there's certainly a moment of change in terms of exhibition across the arts and how we see work. And I don't think we're at the end of exploring that. And I think there'll be a number of different ways that it plays out. But one of the things you mentioned at the beginning was, you know, how the shift online works. And one of the things that my pragmatic brain thinks about is charging people. Is it free? Is it charged? How do people make their money? Um, And what that means about the financial structure and composition of festivals and we've talked about you know we've touched on the fact that funding is very different in different territories so all of those things I think will I don't think I'm a great forecaster because I usually don't find thinking about the future that interesting I sometimes have to professionally but I am really interested in looking at, well, what's around now and what isn't around and what could I do and what do I do with what I find around me? And I'm just much better at that than I am at going, there's the future or, you know. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm a rubbish person to answer the question.
2: Well, if you're always looking at the future, it's no use because you do need to have some sort of grounding in the now.
1: Yeah, live in the present. Way to be. I think it's presented some interesting challenges and we, I mean, we devoted an episode to um, sort of pandemic, pandemic vision of, you know, how the, the field is operating in the pandemic. And on one hand, it's putting a lot of questions as to the value of the work. Like, and like you said, like, are we charging for this or are we not? And I think it's also changing the relationship artists have with their films as well, that they are, probably going to be more selective about where they're going to go because wait, if this is going to be online, then like it might be online for more than half the year and then everyone's seen it. Maybe no one's going to invest in it anymore. But it also has highlighted a lot of areas that I don't think people really see or it has, you know, put forward, you know, a lot of events and a lot of perspectives that people haven't normally seen. Like, for instance, I, I, keep going back to Sans Souci, which is a very unique festival in that the structure of it is a very unique one because it typically takes place over the course of a few months, like usually like weekend events over the course of a few months. And since they've gone online, they've been able to expand that audience and really expand the audience to their you know, curatorial philosophy, really. And it's been really interesting to see. But something that's been a constant conversation in screen dance is like, how do we expand? Like, how do we expand this community? How do we expand this world outward? And we're, I mean, inadvertently seeing an expansion of, of I mean, of the idea of screen dance in that I think we were talking about yesterday or talking about in the Southeast Dance panel, like people are discovering screen dance. And, <laughs> you know, Mark Morris, like, oh, my God, I can switch between spaces. What is this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The most recent Vanity Fair that I received, they actually had an ad for a screen dance film to watch, which I've never seen before. So it's when you're saying people are discovering it, I mean, yeah, it's being, when they, we see these films being advertised, it's usually these bigger ballets that are, you know, introducing, oh, this is something that exists, you know, it's kind of like that gateway into the multiverse of screen dance.
2: But again, it's like very bittersweet because it's kind of like when a dance video goes viral on Facebook and then your non-dance friends share it like six months after you've already seen it a million times. And then you're like, oh yeah, that is dance. And then like, it's sometimes not that great. I feel like that's we're at risk of that happening with dance film and screen dance where All of a sudden it's more mainstream, but the stuff we're seeing in the mainstream isn't really the gold. It's just like the easily digestible stuff by those names that we know, not to knock them at all, but, um, and some companies that are, are big companies do really great screen dance work. Like I would say LA dance project for sure. I'm a big fan, right? Big company, but good work. I just fear this, this being a trend where those of us that have been interested in this for like. Years and decades and working on it on like a deep level are now seeing these superficial examples of like that's a dance video that's not screen dance or dance film, you know. Maybe that's a good way to kind of round out what we're talking about here is like where do we draw those lines, um, especially given today's uh, consumption habits and and the way that we're sharing and producing
3: things. Actually, one of my um, hopes with the Screen Calendar was also to do with this dynamic that you've just described really well, which is, you know, suddenly we've discovered that there's dance film and we put in the names of the big choreographers and see if they have something because that's who we know. And so by having the Dance calendar and being able to send them to organisations that are not specifically in dance film, but as a as a method to say, look, given that you're interested now, here's a treasure trove of access to people who've been doing this for a very long time and just trying to connect the people who are now interested with the existing body it doesn't mean that they have to take it on or adopt it or or say yes that's exactly what i want to do you can then act on that basis in whatever way you feel and that will add their voice to the whole thing but to have something where I can point to and say it's really nice that you're interested and just know what else is going on in that field is it's really it's just helpful exactly and i'm just saying that i mean i
0: for me when i think about those people that are just figuring out i'm also thinking about the older public you know people who uh you know there's a huge age range um you know 50 and up that are going to these Ballet, modern dance, live, classic performances. And if they, if you can just find it, you know, in your lifetime, thank you. Thank goodness for them to finally, you know, have this kind of technology to watch something like dance film.
2: And I do think that screen dance or dance film has the potential to reach a wider audience than dance, you know, by way of age and geography. Um, even just preference. There's it's so much easier to browse a few films and find what you like versus commit to see a full evening program um, and have to be there live in the moment. You know, there's nothing's going to compare to live dance. Like there's nothing. And even when film does it, it's going to be really creepy. And I know I'm not going to like it. But um, I do think that there is an opportunity to really expand audiences now in a way that we wouldn't have had without COVID. So I guess that's a positive.
1: I actually wanted to touch on this notion of expanding audiences and who, like, whether, like, and again, like, there's always this this idea of, you know, percolating in the screen dance world of, like, how do we expand this community? How do we expand this form to more people? And then when we do that, like, what do we, like, how do we refer to this collective? Like, is our audience part of our community? Like, do we want them to engage? How do we want them to engage in the form? Do we want them to, like, produce more films? Do we want them to connect and raise ideas? And there's a lot of uh, ideas as far as, like, how do we term this community? Like, is it, like, do we assume that everybody here is, is, or wants to be a part of this community? Or, like, um, do we want to, Focus it on more like a okay producing films like more of an industrial po- approach as far as like looking at it as far as you know the the producing of events and producing of some kind of a product and what are the ethics behind those um, those terms and those um, ideologies?
2: I think if there's no if there isn't enough uh, and you know this isn't my opinion necessarily. This isn't the way I want it to be, but I think if there's not a lot of funds circulating, you can't really call it an industry. like if there aren't jobs, like if there aren't a lot of j o b s if it's really like people's passion projects, it's difficult to call it an industry. but there's a lot of people that very passionately take their projects seriously, and there are there are economics involved. It just might not be your primary job necessarily. And I find that we have a lot of interesting people that are like working in schools or teaching dance or um, doing other things in the field of dance and or film. And then this is part of their practice. So it's kind of like a we really are like a hybrid community in a way. I always do the Venn diagram. Yeah, I always do a Venn diagram in my workshops. We have dance and cinema and that space in the middle, which I normally signify as purple. So it's like we're all in that purple space where there's that overlap. But maybe it's not an industry. I know Simon laughed and was like, it's definitely not an industry. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <realize> there's money. <laughs> yeah. There's structure, there's money, there's jobs, which there are, but I feel like it's much more of a project-based community initiative with serious academic you know there there's some structural things in place but it's just I feel like the after school component of it maybe isn't as developed or definitely is not as developed as the dance industry or as the film industry separately are
1: I think there's a lot of um thought or a lot to be said whether um you know, a, a collection of or whether a collective necessarily depends on that product or that or even like that institution in order to sustain. Like maybe if for some reason I I don't know, like um, like a nuclear brainwave completely explodes and uh the whole notion of a festival is completely eliminated. Like, you know, would a community be eliminated as well? Or um if let's say like, you know, there's a moratorium on, you know, producing films, like would that you know, dance film community necessarily necessarily fade away. I mean, I don't. I think the thing with screen dance is that, yes, the product f- helps facilitate that dialogue. Yes, the festivals help facilitate that dialogue, but they're usually the source for conversations and source for ideas that's you know spread way beyond those institutional, those institutional bases or
2: whatever uh, whatever comes out of them. Definitely, at the end of the day, it's the people that make it what it is, not the labels and the institutions
1: thank you so much Gita, for taking the time to join us and i actually want to ask what what
3: projects do you have going on right
1: now what's um what's percolating in your mind at the moment
3: so i'm uh i'm just finishing a program of korean work for the place theater i'm working on the kinesthesia film festival which um you know, that at the moment we're only planning one, but I am sort of hoping that we'll have another one, even though, you know, right now just pulling one off is hard enough. It comes from a really specific interest in the kinesthetic approach to filmmaking that dancers and choreographers can bring, and also looking at the kinesthetic experience of the audience. So I'm very excited to be working on that together with collaborators and it's on Film Freeway. you can have a look at what we're all about. The Leeds Film Festival is coming up and we're also having a networking event for UK students who submitted dance film works uh, to be, one of the works will be selected to be a curtain raiser and we had more interest than ever, partly due to the COVID situation. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to get all these different students and recent graduates together because we don't have the travel problem. We can actually connect people who studied at different institutions. And it's such a such an opportunity. And I'm, you know, trucking away on the calendar. The course is absorbing a lot of my time and we've got the new intake of students coming in January. So, yeah, I'm fully entertained i tell you that's it that's all you got going on i i forgot a few but you know <laughs> the southeast dance connect, uh, conversations continue the next one is on the 27th of november and actually some of the conversations about this this non-industry are, are going to come up there as well because we're talking about the fact that you know it's really hard to actually sustain yourself and get the resources to to make the work you want to make so, yeah, no, there's a lot going on and it is this, uh, this dynamic of everyone's discovering screen dance. And when people Google for names, then I'm one of the names that comes up. And so I'm having a lot of inquiries like, hi, I want to make a screen dance. How do I distribute it? And I think, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe just look at my website. But thank you so much for inviting me and I could, I could talk for another day about. All of this. Well,
2: we'll just have to have you on again.
3: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I'm up for that, for
0: sure. That's our show. Thank you for joining us, Gita. We appreciate you and your leadership in the field, industry, and the community. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If you're listening and there's someone you think that we should feature in our next episode, our sometime in this series email us at frameformpodcast at gmail.com if you like what you're hearing why don't you leave us a review on apple podcast it really helps us as a show and also why don't you share the podcast to other people and if you want to follow us on instagram to find out when our episodes are live please follow us on frameform pod that's frameform p-o-d and please stay tuned for next week's episode. We're actually doing an interview with two filmmakers based in Vancouver, Canada, and that will be premiering next week on the show. Jen and Claire, thank you so much for, you know, being here as always. And, well, I'll see you all next week. (laughs) Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by me, Hannah Weber, Claire Schweitzer, and Jen Wright. Edited and mixed by myself and Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next
1: week.